Everybody. My name is Charlie Green and it's great to be back with you for a new edition of Leaving in the Locker Room. I hope you're well and I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for all the support the pod has been receiving over the last few weeks. Please keep sharing with your friends and also across social media. Um, but if you are new to the podcast, the idea is to have a Colonel X sporting professional on as a guest and they'll be putting forward three things they would like to remove from their respective sport. It really can be anything and the point is to give sporting professionals the opportunity to come on and speak openly about what annoys them whilst partaking in their sport. Of course, I'll also find out how my guest is doing and a regularly featured locker room questions will finish off the pod. Now, after having on world champions in my previous two episodes, I thought to myself, how could I compete with that? So what did I do? I went out and got an Olympic athlete, didn't I? So today's guest is a former Team GB and England gymnast. He's won 13 medals at the Commonwealth Games, European Championships and World Championships, notably picking up Team Gold at the 2014 Commonwealth, two golds at the 2012 and 2015 European Championships, respectively, a Team Silver at the 2015 World Championships in Glasgow and a history-making bronze in the vault at the 2013 World Champs. Oh, and you can also add a mere Olympic bronze at London 2012 to that incredible list. That has to be the longest intro I've ever done on the podcast, I think. But Christian Thomas, welcome on to Leaving the Locker Room. Thank you so much for joining me and how's everything with you? Thank you. And thanks for the uh, the thorough intro, I guess. I mean, some of those medals, I don't remember myself, so I'm glad that uh, you, you've dug those, those sort of stats up from somewhere. But yeah, pleasure, pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm all good. Thank you. Looking forward, to, uh, looking forward to the chat. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I've done my research. So yeah, before we get going, I mean, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy in what seems like Groundhog Day at the moment? Oh, doesn't it just? Uh, well, I, I guess today, as an instance, I managed to get outside. The weather's been a little bit nicer, um, go for a longer run. So that's always good just to just to reset the mind a little bit, get away from the desk and, and working from home, which is um, essentially what I do for the most part. Now I, I work for the British Athletes Commission um, as their athlete engagement manager. So sort of work across all Olympic, Paralympic, summer and winter sports. So that's a, a pretty unique role and keeps me very, very busy, particularly with the, I guess, the times that we're in at the minute with, you know, are the Olympic, Paralympics going ahead or they're not going ahead? What's happening with vaccinations and everything else? That, so it's, it's been a very, very busy time in all honesty. Um, so that's, that's certainly keeping me busy and also in the process of, of moving house again over the next sort of month as well. So I'm going to be moving back to the West Midlands where I'm originally from, um, based in London at the moment. So Again, that's going to be keeping me busy and, uh, yeah, all the wrapping and packing and everything else in between. So I've got plenty going on is what I guess I'm trying to say. Yes, it sounds it. And have you picked up any new hobbies in the lockdown? Uh, any new hobbies? I mean, I bought a dartboard in the first lockdown um, <laughs> just because I could. I don't think the landlord is probably going to be too impressed when he, he sees the holes to put that out. Had to put it in the wall to put it up in the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> And then we've had some stray darts going yeah, the holes around it. <laughs> yeah, so there's that, uh, which, which I did pick up. To be honest, I, I tried not to do the whole, when we first got into lockdown, kind of just pressurising myself to be like, right, I've got to learn a language. I've got to learn how to cook. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. To be honest, I just set myself little tiny goals. So one of them was just to read a little bit more. You know, I enjoy sort of nonfiction, autobiographies, that sort of stuff. So um, did a little bit more of that. Um, 
as I say, I just got myself a dartboard just because I bought a, a bike as well, a road bike, so I could get out a little bit more, particularly when it was back in the first lockdown going into the summer, so that was really good. Um, so, yeah, I've just been doing little bits and bobs like that, really. I wouldn't say there's been any particular skill. Um, running, obviously, a little bit more as well, just... You know, predominantly most of my work I did or sort of gym sessions before were sort of weight bearing exercises or resistance exercises, really. So in a gym. So I guess just picking up little things like that, really, just getting out and about and, and running. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I did ultimately try and stay away from that, that thing of, you know, pressurize myself to learn something new, come out of it with a new skill and all that um, and, and just do little things that I enjoy more than anything else, to be honest. Good to hear. It sounds like you're keeping yourself busy. So we are here to talk about gymnastics. So I want to start at the beginning. And when and how did you pick up the sport? Uh, so started at five years old at Earl's Gymnastics Club, uh, which is near Birmingham. And that's, I'm from Wolverhampton. So um, it was about 45 to an hour um, sort of drive to the, the facility. And to be honest, you know, I was just quite fortunate that I found a sport at a very, very young age that one, I enjoyed, you know, chucking myself upside down, foam pits, swinging around bars, swinging around rings. That was amazing that I had something within a reasonable distance on my doorstep. Um, two, it, you know, it kept me sort of active and, and also, you know, the skills I was learning was quite transferable to other sports and sport was kind of what I enjoyed and excelled at perhaps when I was younger a little bit more. So I tended to pick other sports up a little bit easier because of my gymnastics background um, and also, I think it just got me at my parents' sort of head for a little bit, to be honest. Uh, my older brother, he was probably a little bit more, even more active than me. And they sent him to a gymnastics club just to sort of tame some of that energy and him climbing things. And I just followed suit, didn't know anything about the sport at five years old, what it entailed, what it was. But as I said, uh, I was lucky I found a sport I thoroughly enjoyed, a sport I was good at, um, and a sport that I wanted to excel at as well. So it it kind of really just started from there, to be honest. And was it competitive with your brother? Did you compete at a junior level for a while? Uh, because he was a couple of years older, he um, it, it, we, there was always that sort of a big enough gap for me not really to catch him at that stage. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I probably would have got a bit closer, he, he sort of finished gymnastics, around about 12 years old, and he went off and did sort of martial arts and other sports uh, where I stuck at gymnastics. So I never really got to a level where I was... Like sort of beating him which was probably a good thing because I'd still you know bring it up to this day if that was the case um, <laughs> sure. but as I say he found some other sports that he was really good at and I stuck at gymnastics and I guess by sort of under 12s I was fortunate enough then to to get selected for Team GB and be part of their Great Britain squad from 12 years old so that was kind of going to Lily Shoreline National Centre and you know for training camps and and things like that and and then really it was just a, a case of going through the pathway, the performance pathway, then from under 12s to under 14s and 16s and 18s, and then eventually onto the senior team. So it was, um, yeah, that, that was kind of what I did really for sort of all those years between them. So you might not admit this, but you are regarded as a trailblazer for British gymnastics. Since you and the team won that famous Olympic bronze at London 2012, what has it been like sort of to watch the growth of gymnastics since then? I mean, first and foremost, it's been brilliant to see the, the men, particularly on the men's side. I think gymnastics within the UK has always been relatively to a, you know, a good participation level on the women's side. But on the men's side, it never has been. Um, and I, I honestly believe that that bronze medal in London certainly helped raise the profile of men's gymnastics. And so for me to see the sport going from strength to strength, to be competing at the world stage now, you know, the, the British teams, they're going out there to to sort of compete and try and win medals. It's not just about participation anymore. Um, they're going out there to try and win medals for their country, raise the profile of the sport and, and to ultimately get more and more people involved in the sport. And 
obviously I'm biased. I think gymnastics is a brilliant sport, but I honestly do believe the more sort of young children we can get involved in the sport, as I say, they're not all going to be brilliant at it, but what it does, it gives you a really good grounding of other sports and transferable skills, whether it's speed, power, agility, coordination, strength, like they are literally transferable to any other sport. Um, so yeah, I just think it's a really good grounding sport for most people to be able to try. And then, you know, if it's not for them, that's absolutely fine. It's a tough sport, but they would certainly be in a better position than when they go on to try other things. Very well said. And talking of London 2012, where you and the boys won Team GB's first Olympic medal in over 100 years in, in men's gymnastics, you were actually the last man up to deliver your floor routine. Um, so if you went clear, you won uh, the bronze. If you didn't, it would have sort of led to heartbreak. I can't imagine what would have been sort of <laughs> going through your head and the pressure you were under. But looking back at it now, what are your memories of all of it? To be honest, that particular moment, so before that floor routine, I, I was very much aware of, if I go through clean, we've got a chance of a medal. If not, and I mess up, then shit, we've got to try again in four years later. And so I was very, very conscious and aware of that. But equally, and I don't know whether it was the way that the competition had been going out, whether it was, you know, we'd be prepared the right way mentally, physically, you know, for these sort of high pressurized environments. But I can honestly say I was 100% confident of delivering that routine and, you know, I, I, I do try and think back what was the reason for that in that moment in time, uh, because it was without a doubt probably the most high pressurized environment I've ever competed in. And I, I honestly do believe it's because, you know, we'd already done the hours of hard work, the training, the dedication, sacrifice, commitment, everything else. And I'd kind of mentally rehearsed that moment throughout my head sort of months prior to that competition. Um, I was aware, you know, we might finish on the floor exercise. If that was the case, I might be last man up. So what does that mean if I'm in that situation? What will the crowd feel like? What will my sort of my body feel like? The adrenaline going through? How am I going to keep control of that? So there's all these little things that I'd kind of mentally rehearsed. And um, I think, to be honest, it just gave me the best possible chance of going out there and, and enjoying the moment rather than thinking, oh, shit, this is horrible. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is a horrible, horrible position I'm feeling because sometimes competing can feel like that when you've got all these different emotions going through your body of butterflies, sicking your stomach a little bit, adrenaline pumping through your body, anxious to get started, but excited at the same time. There's literally just hundreds of different emotions going through and it can be a little overwhelming, but for whatever reason on that particular day, I, I just I just felt confident and confident in my own ability. And I guess, the, as I mentioned, the way that the, the competition had panned out, my routines prior to that, so on the vault and the high bar, had been pretty successful. Um, so I was feeling good. And I think the two gymnasts that went before me, so we had Max Whitlock, and then Daniel Purvis, they, you know, delivered probably one of the best floor routines that they could. So again, that gave me a little bit of a boost in morale going into my performance as well. And um, yeah, it, to be honest, the, the, the routine, generally, you don't hear much when you're competing. You're in your own little zone, you're in your own little mm -hmm. bubble, and you can't really take much in. But this time in the O2 arena, so probably about 15,000 people in there, I could hear the crowd get louder and louder and louder just as I was going through the routine. And that just gave me the confidence to keep going, in all honesty. It really did make a big, big difference. And I'd never experienced that sort of home crowd advantage before, particularly in a gymnastics competition. It's not really sort of something that you, you know, you would, I guess, attribute towards gymnastics. It's more football, rugby, that sort of stuff where you've got big crowds. But 
um, I really did feel it on that occasion. And um, yeah, I guess clean routine and the rest was history, really. It was. And yeah, like you said, doing it in front of your home crowd, your friends, your family, must have just made it even more special. Another historical achievement of yours, this one personal, was winning your first individual medal in 2013 World Championships, a bronze in a vault. But amazingly, it was also the first global medal ever won in a vault by a British gymnast. That's definitely one also to tell the grandchildren about one day, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I hope so. To be honest, the, the medal is obviously very significant to me and to Great Britain and um, and I guess the gymnastics community. But for me, the more proud part of that is kind of the build up to that world championships, because sort of in the summer, I'd landed badly on the vault and sort of on a straight leg. And I I've basically I fractured my shin bone uh, while I was competing out in France. And so obviously that took time to heal. And I was fortunate in the sense that it was just bone. So that will heal. There was sort of connective tissue. So your ligaments, tendons, they were all intact and fine. And then once I started rehabbing and getting back, I somehow managed to break my heel bone. Um, and essentially that was through sort of tumbling into a foam pit and essentially a big foam pit is a big concrete trench just filled with foam. And I somehow managed to find my way all the way through the foam and, and land and hit the concrete at the bottom. And then that was obviously then back another two, three months then because I had yeah. to let the, the, the heel bone heal. So I wasn't necessarily in the best sort of shape and, you know, um, sort of peak condition going into the trials and, and giving myself a, you know, there was lots of little niggles along the way because I was having to rush the preparation to try and get fit. Um, selection was done very, very late. So that was, again, a, a, just a bit of a, a real mental battle to get myself prepared for that. Um, so actually just getting to the World Championships, I was just proud of being there and, and the opportunity to compete again. And I think because of of how that sort of process, I guess, I guess, sort of opened up throughout that journey to that World Championships, I almost got to a point when I made the final, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go enjoy it. Yeah. I've done all the hard work to get here. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster this year anyway. So just being here is probably, you know, it is a bonus. And then ended up coming away with a bronze medal. So it was, yeah, it was an incredible feeling. It was an incredible moment for me personally as well um, to win my first World Championship medal uh, individually. And then also for it to be the first one on vault for a Great Britain gymnast, which I'm, you know, I'm hugely, hugely proud of. Yeah, I'm sure. It's also great to hear about these two amazing moments for you personally about also how you enjoyed them because you hear so many times sporting athletes they sort of experience these amazing moments and actually they were just bricking it or they felt awful whilst doing it but it's great to hear how positive and how much you enjoyed it um talking of olympics so also i have to ask your thoughts about sort of tokyo olympics and then being postponed by year from 2020 to 2021 what effect do you think this will have on the gymnasts and like will it be an advantage or a disadvantage uh, I guess originally I thought it probably would have been a bit of disadvantage. Um, and I thought that because UK was in a, a situation at the time where everything was locked down, they weren't able to train and other countries still were training. So that for me was a huge competitive disadvantage. However, you know, the sort of, over the well, probably since the summer now, those sort of training elite athlete exemptions that are out there now that allow the athletes to go being COVID safe facilities to train and, and still do what they need to do to prepare for such a, a competition like the Olympic Games. So I'm no longer worried about that sort of side because that, you know, they've been training for again for quite a, a number of months now and back to where they need to be. Perhaps even for some, the build up to an Olympics, it takes a lot on your body. Um, and they probably would have been starting to get to the point where those those sort of niggles and aches and pains were creeping in and probably getting a little bit higher and the tolerance level getting a little bit lower. So that perhaps reset of the month or six weeks, however long they weren't able to train, 
probably just allowed that inflammation in the body to come down a little bit and then actually reset again. And as long as they sort of build up and periodize the training properly, then they probably would physically would be in a better position. And then also just, you know, seeing them train now, particularly the British lads now, they, they look in great shape. They look as though they're ready to go. And I no longer think it's a disadvantage. Um, as far as it being an advantage, I'm not too convinced just because I don't know what advantage they, they could have got other than perhaps their body feeling a little bit better perhaps uh, mm-hmm. because it's had a little bit more time to be rested. But equally saying that, they'll be absolutely fine competing in the summer. And I'm, I'm excited to see them go out there, hopefully, you know, not just enjoy themselves, but also do the performance that warrants all the hard work that they've done over the last few years. I know personally just what the sacrifices and the train that they've had to commit to to get to that sort of stage. So, uh, yeah, I'm gunning for them. That's good to hear. Lots to look forward to. Um, but obviously you are still very much involved with British gymnastics and this sort of Olympic journey. Do you think there's any possibility that it actually might not go ahead? I mean, there's always a possibility. You know, we've seen the sort of COVID and how quickly it changes, particularly in the UK. It went from zero to 100 very, very quickly. And there's always a chance that that could happen again, new variants of, of COVID. Um, it's always going to be mutating and, and changing. That is always going to be a concern. Having said that, you know, the organising committee in Japan and the International Olympic Committee, they've been, I suppose their approach is still, you know, we are preparing for an Olympic Games. And I guess what that does is it allows the athletes just to concentrate on training and competing and and getting their mind in, you know, in a position where, okay, if the Games are going ahead, I need to be ready. If not, we'll worry about that after. But right now, just seeing the athletes, I can see that they're head down, training, working hard, um, trying to, to make sure that they're at Tokyo, they're they're out there competing but you know it, it goes without saying there is always a possibility that something could happen just because of the nature of covid and you know we've seen it unfold so many times already but they're in the best possible positions you know we've got great teams to support around them in the high performance system whether it's uk sport the funding um the bac where i work sort of the independent support uh, eis which is all the sports science and medicine around them boa so the, the team gb who kind of lead on all the operations and you know getting them out to Tokyo and what that looks like once they're in Tokyo so they've got an incredible incredible support network around them so I'm as as confident as possibly can be at this stage I guess going through the media handbook just checking off all the right things you have to say I love it (laughs) don't annoy any stakeholders by not you know giving them a mention they do deserve it honestly it's been a tough 12 months for them all to sort it out very true um and before we move on to the the things you want to remove from gymnastics you've been now retired for over three years do you miss it or are you content with how and when you left the sport uh, from a competing point of view i'm definitely content 100 percent. i and i know that because when i've been to watch competitions and i've been fortunate enough to do a bit of commentary or arena announcing or that sort of stuff and i've kind of sat there and in the crowd or you know behind a mic and just sat there thinking shit i'm glad i'm not down there competing <laughs> like i just <laughs> i just don't fancy it and um that for me is a, the biggest indicator that there possibly can be that time was up and i was ready to move on and i obviously started having those thoughts pre pre rio olympics and um for me olympics that's what gymnastics and the, you know the pinnacle of any athlete's career so for me that was a good position to you know move on and try new things while i still could while i was still young enough to to do these things and as i say it wasn't i'd achieved everything i wanted to in sport and and more than that my body was perhaps starting to feel a little bit sore a little bit tired maybe if i'd have just had a, a you know, a prolonged sort of break that might have been okay because it, it feels pretty good now. Um, but that was obviously in the back of my mind as well. You know, you want good quality of life, sort of post post athletics career as well. And so I think all that combined, it just led to the right decision. And uh, 
now I look back now and I just think it was an incredible, incredible time in my life, competing at home games, traveling with my teammates, my friends, you know, so fortunate to get the, to do a job that I genuinely love to do. However, you have to draw a line in the sand with that at some point. It's not a job you can do forever. And I think I've managed to find a nice kind of segue into something else where I'm still involved in elite sport. I still have touch points with the team, with, you know, Olympic and Paralympic sports that, that keeps me in that bubble, in that environment. And I think because of that, I, yeah, I'm in a pretty good place with it and, and uh, pretty happy with my decision. Good to hear. Okay, so moving on to the reason why you've come onto the podcast today, and that is for you to come on and put forward three certain things to remove from your sport gymnastics. So the way this is going to work is one by one, Christian is going to put forward three things he would like to remove from gymnastics, and then we're going to discuss them, and Christian is going to try and convince me the best he can uh, that they should be removed from the sport. And then after hearing Christian's arguments, I'm then going to pick one of the three things to hypothetically remove and leave it in the locker room. So Christian, what's the first thing you'd like to remove from from gymnastics please so this one's uh, more specific to the men's side so i'm not talking about women's here this is just men's gymnastics um in particular but gymnastics attire on the men's side i.e the leotard for me i still scratch my brain on it to be honest i've got no idea why in this day and age we are still wearing you know what is coined as a leotard my personal opinion is that it just holds the sport back massively on the men's side. And, and I see that sort of firsthand because I'm fortunate enough to go into schools and, you know, talk to, you know, young school children about my sport, how amazing it is, show them some pretty cool gymnastic stuff. And as soon as you get asked that question, you know, do you have to wear a leotard? You can just hear the sort of the sniggles around the room, particularly on the boys' side. And I think that's just such a big deterrent. And for young boys to actually take up the sport. And, you know, you might only wear it sort of five times a year because you don't compete all that often. And when you train, you're only just training in a pair of shorts or a t-shirt and things like that. So it's not like, you know, you have to wear it for every single training session or anything like that, but it's just that perceived idea of having to wear a leotard. And, you know, if I compare it with all the sports science in the world these days, and you see like, you know, what athletes wear on the athletics track or weightlifters wear, or, you know, any other sport, really, they wear something fairly similar. But because in gymnastics, it's coined as a leotard, I just think it's a massive, massive deterrent for young boys to take up the sport when ultimately I know as, as soon as you've got them in the gym and you let them have a go and, you know, swing around a barge, jump in foam pits, jump off trampolines, they would love it. Like, hands yeah. down, they would absolutely love it. Yeah. So, so when you were younger, were you put off by the fact that you had to wear a leotard? I think because when I started gymnastics, and as I said, I didn't know anything about sport, to be honest. I didn't even know what it was, what the word gymnastics even meant. And, you know, at five years old, you're also not competing. I didn't do my first competition until probably seven or eight years old. So I was already sort of two, three years in the sport then before I had to wear a leotard for the first time. And, and so by that point, I was already, you know... I'd found something I enjoyed, something I wanted to pursue, something I wanted to to keep doing. So I guess it wasn't a big enough deterrent for me at that stage. But for sure, you know, sort of young boys who perhaps want to start the sport, perhaps not five years old, maybe a year or two later, or or six, even just six years old. I just think it's something that they would struggle to get the head round. You know, it's mm. something that would be coined as you know something that uh, a girl would wear. Um, and just for those reasons alone, I think it's it's just a shame because I, I really do believe it's holding the sport back. Yeah, I mean, this is actually something. I can relate to because when I was younger, 
some people might be surprised by this some might not be but i used to do ballet uh when i was yeah really young and even though my parents were big fans of it because it was so good for coordination and balance like things you mentioned at the top of the show i never actually enjoyed it and i never sort of took it up past the age of probably seven because ballet in my head was always considered a girl's sport yeah and it's exactly the, i think the same sort of preconceptions within gymnastics to a certain extent i think it's massively changing don't get me wrong and i, I think the the exposure to the sport, particularly on the men's side and it being televised a lot more now and seeing actually that top end of gymnastics and what you can actually get to and aspire to. And I think it is slowly starting to change. But for me, I think it could change 10 times quicker if, you know, we just had a, a different approach and, and started exploring different attires that, that gymnasts could wear. And I appreciate it's a hugely historic sport with, you know, a big history behind and, and also, you know, there's probably an argument in there. You want to be streamlined. You, you know, you don't, don't want to be wearing anything that you could potentially catch or go over your head or, or anything like that. But so many other sports have got other sort of ideas and different attires that, you know, I think we could benefit from as well. Yeah. And you say that you think it being called a leotard and automatically like makes people perceive it as a girl's sport. When you were sort of competing in younger junior gymnastics, what was the ratio of boys to girls like and what do you think it is now? Oof. I mean, it was probably slightly different for me in the sense that where I trained, it ended up being a predominantly boys club. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, the elite side was just was just men's gymnastics and boys gymnastics. So I suppose growing up, I didn't really see it too much. But actually, when I retired, I was doing some coaching. And I would say in a class of 30, you'd probably get between two to yeah two to five boys in a class. Um, and then wow. the rest would be girls. And that would be pretty consistent throughout the week. Um, and so, as I say, there is still a big gap between yeah. men's and women's gymnastics, um, despite the you know successes that we've had the sort of the last 10 years. And it is certainly going in the right direction. It was certainly having a lot more exposure and a lot more interest in it at a young age. But I think there's still more things that we can do. Yeah, that's huge. And what exactly does a male's leotard actually look like? Because they're very different from what the girls wear because they have sparkles all over it, don't they? Yeah, so obviously we don't we don't have the, the sparkles and, and things like that. But And there's different cuts, to be honest. You can have a cut that is pretty much like a leotard. So like uh, it sort of comes to one sort of around the groin area and then you wear shorts over the top. And then you have some cuts that are a little bit more. So imagine what weightlifters wear. It's an all-in-one and it mm. looks like they go into sort of shorts, but then we still wear shorts over the top as well. So that's kind of like your, I guess, your two probably most um, regular sort of cuts of, of what you'd see um, for a leotard. And I have to ask, are they comfortable to wear? Oh, not at all. There's nothing comfortable <laughs> about them at all. Uh, the ones that are cut obviously more into shorts are, as you can imagine, actually a little bit more comfortable. And <laughs> I don't know how we ended up getting onto this concept. And to be honest, there is also a certain level of, of obviously safety in that region as well, that you yeah. need everything compact and tight. You know, you're jumping around, swinging around. So that does have <laughs> to come into consideration. However, you know, as I mentioned, when you're training, you're just training underwear and shorts. So mm -hmm. I don't know why we couldn't even just do that in a competition, to be honest. And, I even personally think, you know, gymnasts, they're, they're blessed with pretty good physiques because of the type of training that they do. And so I think, again, I think that's a massive selling point for sort of people that want to see the sport more or want to get involved in the sport yeah. more. So, yeah, I will ask you, what do you think men should wear instead when they're competing? To be honest, 
I even think just shorts would be fine, to be honest. So just your mm. underwear and shorts. I don't see there being a problem, the fact that your upper body is out, your upper torso is out. And I know sort of international federations, gymnastics will say, no, absolutely not, not doing that. I mean, you know, I know swimming is uh, uh, different. You're going in water, but if yeah. swimmers can do it, why can't gymnastics, uh, really? And then if, if that's not the case, then, okay, why can't we wear something perhaps similar to what like athletics um so you know you see the sprinters wearing all in one sort of thing um where there's just a little bit more going on and yeah it's i think we just got to get away from it to be honest as, as quickly as possible but you know i i can still see in 20 years time it's probably won't have changed it's it's massively historical the sport and yeah i, I think we're just it's something i'll probably be gunning for and pushing probably even 20 30 40 years time yeah, I mean, you just want to get the rig out at the end of the day, show off the chassis, don't you? <laughs> Go topless. <laughs> well, I mean, as an athlete, you've been working all those years, so you might as well get some sort of props for it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, good argument. All right, so moving on, what is the second thing you would like to remove from gymnastics, please? Okay, so this is not necessarily a complete removal because we need, well, you need some form of judging system within gymnastics. It's a judge yeah. sport. But for me at this moment in time, uh, the judge, the whole judging system for gymnastics is just far too complicated for, I guess, for the public to understand and to understand why someone has been given that score and another person's been given that score. And there's so much that goes into those scores. You know, you've got two sets of panel of judges you'll have uh, a d panel which is for your difficulty so basically they will kind of monitor how difficult your routine is and then you've got an execution panel and they will be the ones taking deductions so how scrappy or messy routine was did they bend their legs there did they bend their arms there did they hold that position for long enough and those basically those two scores are then added together so although that sounds very well, not too complex. There's also so many sort of intricacies behind all that. So, you know, each skill will be given a certain value. Those values are then added up. You then also will have special requirements that you have to fulfill built to, to get this score. And there's just so much going on in there that for a general public, how are they supposed to understand? Yeah, I think so. your argument is basically it's just it's so complicated for like the general viewer to understand and watch. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they, I think it was 2006 or 2005, I think maybe 2006, they eventually moved away from that, that sort of historic 10 scoring system, um, which, you know, for the sport, it was a massive, massive move in a different direction. And actually the sport has just grown hugely in regards to level of difficulty, the skills that are now being performed. Um, and so that is a big plus. However, the thing with the 10 score was people understood it. People knew, mm -hmm. you, you know, if you got a 10, that's a perfect score. If you, the closest you can get to 10, then that's still a good score. And people understood that concept where now, you know, they'll see someone got a 12.5, another person got a 13.5, someone got 15.5, like, and they've got no idea why. So why did they move away from the, the 10 score? I think it was to try and... You know develop the sport and so we could push the boundaries a little bit more i think it was also partly because <laughs> what they call basically what they call is a, an open end an open-ended system uh, or an open-end code so which that essentially means that you can keep doing the most difficult skills and, and keep pushing the boundaries and you know the person with the 10 most difficult skills they will have a higher level of difficulty where mm -hmm. that 10 score it almost capped that and there was too many people that was able to now achieve that 10 um and those you know the sort of discrepancies between the scores were extremely extremely close then 
Um, and so this, you know, it, it certainly has worked within that frame, but we're, we're still at a point where it's just too complicated for, as I say, for the general public to understand that. And so there's got to be almost a level or of a balance between the two of understanding, okay, that's a good score, that's not a good score. And, you know, the fact that we have we can't really have sort of world records or Olympic records, which is a huge, you know, marketable kind of yeah. um, stat or, you know, result or it's score, a big whatever deal. you want to call it. Yeah, it's massive. And, and again, people understand it. But because of our judging system and, you know, it's, it's a subjective system where there's a different panel of judges for different competitions, we're never, ever going to be able to achieve that until we probably really take a hard look at it and reset a little bit. And so that, that's, it's a, a big change, but I think we can probably slowly start to move something towards that if we want to, you know, really see growth within the sport of gymnastics. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned there, so there's the D score and the E score. So these then get added together. And then does that, is that for the individual performance and then that gets added to the team score or like what exactly is happening? And then I guess my question then after then is what is a good score? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially what you just said then. So as I say, your, your difficulty score and your execution score will get added together. And that is your score for that apparatus. So Christian Thomas, you've just p- competed on the floor. You've just scored 14.5. Your next team member will then go up, do exactly the same. They just scored another 14.5. So your combined score for the team for that apparatus is 29. And then you move on to the next apparatus and, and so on. So that's how the team sort of scores work and, and individually as well. Um, these sort of days, if you're scoring probably between 14.5 to 15.5, that's probably considered, I would say, a world-class routine. And, and But the thing is, again, general probably don't necessarily know that. How, how are they yeah, going to know exactly. that 14.5 is good or a 15.5 is good? They, at the end of the day, they just see the high score wins, but they won't understand why that person has won. Is it because their difficulty was so high that no one could catch them? Or was it because their execution score, so you know, their, mm-hmm. their routine was so, so neat and tidy that the judges had relatively nothing to take off? So trying to understand the difference between the two, um, I think is quite difficult. It, it, it sounds it for sure. And then when these judges are, are scoring uh, these competitors, I mean, what are they looking for? Like, what are they marking down in routines? So the the difficulty um, sort of panel, they're adding up the gymnast's 10 most difficult skills. So, and each skill is given a value. So the most basic skill is given an A value. And then on the men's side, the most difficult skill is an I value. Um, so it goes through alphabetical order, essentially. So for an A, you'll get 0.1, a B, 0.2, C, 0.3, and so on till you get to I, which is 0.9, I think. Okay. And so essentially, if let's say you your three your first three skills in your routine were all the C value, that's 0.3, 0.3, 0. 0.3. So now you're on 0.9. So that's, and then basically after your 10 skills, that is then your difficulty score. They've added up your 10 most difficult yeah, skills. Okay. That's your difficulty level. So obviously, if you had 10 skills, that was all at, at um, you know, an I level or an I grading, whatever you want to call it, um, then you would have the most difficult routine in the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that is then added to your execution score, uh, which yeah. is the judges who are then taking those deductions. You'll start at 10. So each gymnast will start at 10 and then they'll start taking away from 10. So they'll be looking for, you know, on the rings, have they held that strength position long enough? Did they wobble in handstand? How's their landing when they landed the dismet? Did they take a step? Did they fall on the grass? Did they put their hands down? Then they'll be looking at leg bends. They'll be looking at handstand positions, angles, how they caught, you know, the high bar. So there's, you know, lots and lots of different areas that judges will be taking deductions. And ultimately then, 
if I haven't asked you already, that difficulty and execution score is added together and that's your final score. I can see it's why. Confu- I mean, it's you're confusing me it. just to explain it, to be honest. And I've been, you know, in the sport sort of 20 plus years and it's, you know, unless it's your, as I say, your bread and butter, it's very, very difficult to get your head around. It definitely is. So I have to ask the million dollar question. If it was up to you, how do you think gymnastics should be judged in order to make it easier for people to understand? Well, I think we need to bring in, again, a bit of a framework where it could even just be something as far as trying to educate the audience pre-competition. So, you know, what is a good routine? What should they be looking for? Trying to, I guess, bring back that same level of where everyone understood. So, for example, that 10 score. Now we need to bring, you know, it's not 10 anymore. Let's say it's it's 16 or, or as close to that. So, you know, the audience know if you're getting close to 16, that is a world-class score. But to be honest, we don't even really do that. To be honest, the competition goes on and, and the audience just take it in and, you know, they see some cool tricks and twists and tumbles and things like that. And there's a score that pops up at the very end. Um, so we've got to educate the, the audience. And then, you know, what I haven't mentioned is there's, you know, what they call sort of special requirements within um, so, for example, one special requirement would be you have to dismount of a D value. So it has to be of a certain standard to get your your special requirement. And so there's all these little, again, intricacies in there that we almost just need to get rid of, to be honest, yeah, because it's not helping. They don't, yeah, it's really not helping. So I guess my I haven't got all the answers and, and no, that's not. You know, of causing all these problems with zero solutions, but we need to find a way to, and I really don't want to be that guy, um, but we need to find a way of simplifying the judging system and the scoring system and the code of points of is what it's called, um, just to make it a little bit more digestible for the general public. I'll have to send you away and get you on in a few months when you have your idea and we can uh, put it forward to the gymnastics uh, world organization. Okay, brilliant. And the third thing that you would like to put forward to be removed and put into the locker room. (laughs) So this one, um, I guess, is a bit of a weird one. And we was, you know, we was chatting earlier and how we was going to, I guess, coin it. And I suppose we ended up calling it a performing monkey, basically, didn't we? Uh, Which is the fact of, when people find out that you're a gymnast, their natural response is to say, can you show me backflip? Um, <laughs> and I suppose when you're a little kid, that's absolutely fine. But when you're an adult in a beer garden, like why on earth do you, would you want to do a backflip? Like, do you know what I mean? And so it's, I suppose it's just trying to get away from that sort of, you know, that thing where we're not circus trained acts or performing monkeys that just at the drop of a hat is just going to do backflips all the way down the road back to the house or walk on the hands to the bar or do a backflip in a nightclub <laughs> or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, we have a pretty cool and unique skill set, but, you know, there's environments to do that and where I think people naturally presume that any given time you can just break out and start doing, you know, three somersaults in the air and not actually understand that. When we do that in a gymnastics facility, that's a sprung floor, right? That will give you extra height to, you know, to get into the air, to do that sort of stuff. So again, I suppose it almost goes back to, again, just educate the the general public a little bit more, but that is um, something that I've experienced quite a lot, sort of particularly more so uh, once I got a little bit older and I suppose my profile raised a little bit after the Olympics where, again, you, you know, you're just asked to do things that, you're just not realistically it possible in someone's back garden. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, you mentioned it happens in back gardens. Like where, what is another prime example of this happening? Uh, generally beer gardens or pubs, just because everyone's had a drink by that point. That's always yeah. one. Probably a nightclub as well. Just again, <laughs> the, the natural 
um, sort of thing. And, and also, I, I suppose I go into schools as well. And again, that's even, and I guess I don't know whether it's naivety or, or perhaps just, you know, the sport needs to do a better job at educating the general public. But teachers might even expect you to do, you know, three flips and then three somersaults in the air. Mm-hmm. And the sports all that's made of concrete or wood or all these different things. And actually, you, you, you know, you have to be realistic with them and say, look, you have got, you know, a two inch mat. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's not what I train on. That's not what I compete on. There's a significant difference. And so, you know, you, you just have to, I guess just help try and manage expectations, I guess is what I'm trying to say really in those sort of situations. And absolutely, there's nothing more I'd love to try and show young people and to show other people how brilliant the sport is, but it's doing it in the right way and it's doing it in the right environment. Uh, And we have got a pretty unique skill set and everyone gets excited and they want to see that. But again, just managing that expectations that just because, I don't know, there's sort of a table over there i'm not just going to go and start doing circles or flares on it you know it's that's not how a sort of real world works i mean have you ever though you know somebody has got up to you and said oh can you do a backflip and you've gone actually you know what oh, i'm just gonna do it and you have done it or do you normally just sort of have a chuckle and walk away or whatnot uh yeah usually the second one i'm not really i don't particularly like sort of drawing attention on, on that sort of stuff. Um, I've probably got other teammates who would actually love to do it and then all the eyes would be on them and that, that's absolutely fine, but that's just not how I operate. And so, um, you know, no doubt though, without a doubt, there has been times and when I sort of, particularly when I retired and played football and that as well, like all I want you to do is if you score your goal celebrations, the backflip uh, and things like that. So again, it's just sort of social pressures in every way, shape or form for you to do backflips at any given moment. <laughs> <laughs> I completely get what you're saying, but on the other hand, it is also, it is a very sort of cool party trick to be able to walk on your hands or do a backflip. And I remember when I was back at university in America, I had this one friend who, I'll name him because it'll make his day. His name was Thomas. <laughs> Anyhow, he would just sometimes randomly at parties actually just sort of get up onto a table or the side of a sofa and he would just do a backflip. And the amount of attention he got from it was astonishing. So he actually, he loved it. Oh, without a doubt. And I've got teammates who would absolutely lap it up and I had, <laughs> and that's completely fine. But as I say, I'm just not wired that way. And it's not something that I particularly would you know want to do. And, and I've also, I guess, been caught short when I was perhaps a little bit more young and naive and, and, and sort of done one after I had had a drink. And I could tell you that alcohol going upside down very quickly, <laughs> doing a 180 sort of somersault is the worst thing that you can do because your sense of coordination that, you know, you rely on for your gymnastics gets completely wiped out. Um, and you're, you know, it just becomes null and void, basically. Um, so one sort of bad landing that you're like, okay, that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done. I'm not doing that again. And all it takes is you for you to mess it up or for people to think, oh, is that it? And then actually it'll just bring you back down a peg or two. So for those sort of reasons alone, it's not worth me doing. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like it's also just so annoying from your point of view because I feel like when somebody would come up to you and ask you to do a backflip or whatnot, they kind of sort of just forget how much sort of skill is required and the dedication that has got into perfecting that technique in the sport that you uh, participated at. Oh, definitely. You know, we what you see on television at Olympic Games or World Championships, that is years and years and years of hard work uh, and preparation and and commitment to that craft. Um, and that's what's great about gymnastics. You know, you put in the hard work, the graft, you get the rewards at the very, very end. But it just means that, you know, there's a big difference between a goalpost in a park and a high bar that you swing around and let go of. Um, and so what you do on a high bar 
in a gymnastics facility is not going to be the same as swinging around a goalpost. You know, it's they're not just because they're round and they're set up in you know the similar sort of shapes. We, we just have to be realistic with you know what what you can actually do on something like that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, answer this how you like because I know you're happily married. But have you ever used one of your gymnastic skills to when you were younger to uh, sort of talk to a girl or a scenario like that? Well, to be honest, actually, my my wife, um, she we actually went to school together, and we've been sort of going out since sixth form. So she knew me from way back when I was just Christian Thomas. He has extra time off school to do gymnastics. I don't really knew what gymnastics was back then. And so it was never really, I guess, something that I could particularly use. Gymnastics certainly wasn't cool. You know, being a boy in Wolverhampton at secondary school, it was, it was not something that I could particularly use to, you know, I guess, impress girls. Uh, it just, yeah, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and to be honest, also, my wife's the, the type of person, actually, she just tell me, Christian, don't like look like a twat. Like, yeah. do, do you know what I mean? She, she's very funny, <laughs> frankly. That don't do that. You're like, you're just being a knob. <laughs> good for her. Good for her. Okay, well, it's got to that time where I have to pick one of these things uh, to remove from gymnastics and leave it in a locker room. Um, now, Christian, you brought some really interesting points uh, forward here, and thank you also teaching me uh, so much about a sport that I'm very unfamiliar with. So it's been very interesting. But what I have decided to hypothetically remove from gymnastics to leave it in the locker room is drum roll please I'm going to put the gymnastics judging system into the locker room because I think it is the obvious choice uh, at the end of the day sort of due to the fact that you mentioned the sport has to become more watchable for the general viewer I mean I think the sport has great potential to continue to grow even more than it is right now and if it is simpler to understand that is just the best way of doing it in my opinion um like if you take for instance i don't know football it's the most popular sport in the world because the general concept of it is just so easy to understand so you don't actually have to be a fan of football you can stick it on and you know who's winning you know exactly what team is doing well and i think a lot of sports including gymnastics can uh, can learn from that Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively happy with the choice. I guess it was, you know, it's probably a closer toss up between that and the Leotards, but I'll, I'll take the judging system. And although I've just, you know, slagged off the whole judging system, I know that they are as a sport trying to do what they can to simplify it and push boundaries a little bit more and make it more marketable. So um, I'm not the only one sort of fighting this corner in this space. So I hope it's a, a sooner rather than later sort of push. Okay, so I can now put in a gymnastics judging system into the locker room along with all the other things from previous episodes. So in it goes. And now it's time for the end of podcast feature locker room questions. Co-producer Henry, let's hear what's making you famous around the world. Well, it's always nice to hear things like that, Charlie, but I don't do it for the fame. I do it for the fans. But of course, it's time for Locker Room Questions with Christian Thomas, brought to you by Buda Vida, the activewear brand giving back to women in sport. And if you've been inspired to get flexible like Christian, then Buda Vida is just the place to get all your new sportswear. And luckily for you, Christian, even though they aren't going into the locker room forever, there's not a leotard in sight. So head over to Buda Vida and use discount code hashtag leave it in the locker room for 30% off your order. Back to you, Charlie.
Now it's time to play our end of podcast feature locker room questions where we find out what happened behind the closed doors of the men's Team GB locker room. So Christian, we're going to start with your go-to pre-competition meal. So if I was competing in the UK, this is going to sound really shit, by the way, (laughs) I would go for scrambled egg, beans and toast. That would be my breakfast in the oh with brown sauce, by the way, not ketchup, has to be brown sauce. (laughs) Um, in the morning of competition day. And if I could get it abroad as well, I'd do it abroad. Uh, but it was just a little bit more difficult. So, yeah, got to be my scrambled egg, baked beans, toast, brown sauce. Fish bash wash, love it. And funniest person in the locker room? Funniest person? Um, probably not for the reasons because they were a, f- a funny sort of individual. It was just because it was more the things they did was funny yeah. um, and probably not for the best either. And that was my teammate, Dan Purvis. Um, and just general, the most laid back, nicest person you could ever meet. But at times he would do things where you'd look at him, scratch your head and think, how, how did you get to that point and that outcome by going through that process? Do you know what I mean? And he just baffled me at times. Some of the things that he did or come out with that. Yeah. And just for those reasons alone, he, he was the one who, who just always had me in stitches, but for completely the wrong reasons. Did you have an example of one of these scenarios? Uh, one of these scenarios. Um, <laughs> we'll be careful which ones that I use. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I could give you one. Actually, he was one of the uh, my ushers at my wedding a few years ago. And although this isn't when he was an athlete, we had a hotel nearby that a lot of residents stayed at. And then there was a the venue itself. And um, some people were staying there as well. And he tried checking into the venue that wasn't where he had booked his accommodation and he was convinced he was staying there and like just little things like that. But he would do things like that on a day-to-day basis that just scratch your head and just thought, how, how are you still functioning, Dan, <laughs> as an elite Olympic medley sports person? Um, best dancer in the locker room. I imagine this must be quite tough because you guys all, all got pretty good coordination. I mean, you'd probably like to think so, but <laughs> probably not. I mean, best dance easily, that's got to be Lou Smith. You know, he wouldn't strictly come dancing in yeah. 2012, I think it was. So that's a, that's a no-brainer on that one. Okay. And which teammate in the locker room spends the most time in front of the mirror? Oh, spends most time in front of the mirror. You know what, actually, I'm probably going to have to put Dan Purvis back. I'm giving him a real bad time here, actually. I'm going to have to phone him and apologise to him later. Um, but I'm going to say, Dan, and because I don't know what it was, but every single reflection, like you walk past the weir- like a window in a shop or anything like that, and he'd always just check himself out, like always without doubt. And I, I don't even know if it was a vanity thing, to be honest. I think it was just habit by the end of it. But, yeah, he would always spend probably the most time in front of, you know, mirrors and, as I say, reflections and, and checking himself out and, sort of changing a centimetre of one strand of, on his head of hair and little things like that. Just So for that reason, he's, he's going to be, uh, he'll be my number one choice on that one. Gotcha. And then worst dressed. Oh, worst dressed. <laughs> <laughs> worst the dressed. Ah, who was the worst dressed? Uh, okay, I've got one person and he was only in the team. I mean, he was in the team for a few years and his name was Yevgeny and he actually came from Ukraine and then back to he originally from Ukraine and then ended up training and, and living in um, in the UK and competing for GB. But I just remember him telling me, we sometimes used to wear like gymnastics, kind of like slippers almost, but what they are is just they're a light fabric with grip underneath just for when you're sort of, you know, tumbling or on the bolt run because when you're competing, the carpet can sometimes be a little bit slippy. So it just mm-hmm. helped with grip for basically. And, you know, these are, are, are sort of just weird looking sort of slipper shoes. And I remember him telling me that he wore them on a night out 
Um, and it's always stuck me because I just thought it was the most strangest, oddest thing that anyone could ever do. Um, so for that reason alone, he he can have the worst dress sense. Uh, just for that reason, nothing else. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And then for you, worst moment walking back into the locker room? Uh, this was easy. 2016 Rio Olympics team final. We finished fourth, which is obviously a super shit position anyway to finish in. And I knew it was, although I had floor final after that, I knew that was, I was winding down the sort of my last competition. And I knew that we had every chance to go out there and win a medal that night. Um, we were good enough. We were certainly, yeah, certainly good enough to, to probably to push the silver medal. Um, and for whatever reason, it, it, you know, that sport, it just wasn't our time and it didn't go the way that we wanted it to. And I just remember feeling so deflated, so devastated after that competition, um, walking back into the changing room after and just needing the moment just by myself, just to reflect and, and take it all in. And that, that was quite a difficult competition. And in hindsight, maybe it was the best thing because actually after that, we had our most successful Olympics as a men's program and, and won the most medals we'd ever won at Olympic Games. So maybe it gave us a bit of a, you know, a kick up the arse or the consequences after were fairly positive. However, just in that moment at that given time, it was just a horrible, horrible feeling knowing that we came so close, but still fourth means nothing. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, it's not the Olympic medal, which we were all, we were all gunning for and we were hoping and, and we were trying to win. Mm-hmm, I'm sure. And then to end on a positive note, the best moment walking back into the locker room. I mean, the easy option here is to say sort of London Olympics. Uh, but the reality was we was very, very quickly whisked from winning the medal to then media, 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 more media for literally four or five hours straight after. So we never really got to just take it in as a group and just actually just sit back and be like, that was pretty special. And so, and so as I say, that probably should have been the, the number one kind of choice, but I'm probably not going to put it in there for that reason. The other one I would say was probably Glasgow 2015 World Championships, where I was team captain. We won our first World Championship medal as a team. First time we'd won a world medal. Well, we finished second position. Um, and again, that was in Glasgow, a home crowd. It was just an incredible feeling, an incredible atmosphere. And I, I just remember after the, the competition, we did have a little bit of media, but nowhere near the, like the same sort of mental as Olympics. And went back to the hotel and um, we had our friends, our family, our coaches, our loved ones, all waiting in the bar area. And we just got to spend some time with them and just take in the moment, enjoy it. And as I say, it wasn't necessarily in the locker room, but it was as good as really. And, and I just remember that and it just feeling and being a, a pretty special moment. So, yeah, I, I'm going to pick the, the 2015 World Champs, um, going back to the hotel in the bar and get to celebrate it with, with your loved ones and your friends, family, coaches, etc. Very, very good. Well, Christian, thank you so much for coming on and being such a great guest. I really, really enjoyed uh, talking to you and learning from you all about the sport. And I'm sure all our listeners have learned so much more about the world of gymnastics. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all, Charlie. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm just hoping now I don't get too much abuse from all the judges in gymnastics that I do know who are now going to be slagging me off for, uh, for saying the job that they're doing needs to be better. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that I'm sure they'll uh, give you uh, a pass on that. I'm sure you'll be all right. Anyway, thank you very much, mate. Cheers.
And that is all she wrote for today's episode. The journey continues here on Leaving in the Locker Room. Thank you so much to Christian for coming on. And I have to say, it was great to listen to somebody just clearly speak about a sport that he truly, truly loves. Thank you, the listeners. Also, I'm sure you enjoyed the podcast. And remember to head over to at By the Green Media on Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with all the announcements. And of course, please download and subscribe to Leave It in a Locker Room on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Six episodes completed now many more to come i look forward to welcoming you back then catch you soon